Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome to Top of the Morning on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. Our conversation today will revisit the healthcare space as we will discuss everything from where the U.S. stands on COVID-19 vaccination rollout to notable developments within the space, a performance outlook, thoughts on positioning, and more. So joining me here on the line for the conversation today, glad to welcome back to Top of the Morning, Eric Potiker, Healthcare Analyst Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office. So Eric, good morning to you. Great to be with you as always and looking forward to our conversation today. Hey, good morning, Dan. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Absolutely. So, Eric, as a starting point, maybe to level set in terms of how performance has been playing out within the space on a year-to-day basis, how has the group performed relative, Eric, to your expectations heading into the year, and what have been the key drivers of performance from your vantage point? Overall, the group has performed more or less in line with what I would have expected and what what the strategy team and CIO um, where, where they think the group will perform at this point in the economic cycle. I think the, um, you know, the, the overarching forces are first, you know, the broader economic cycle where a defensive sector like healthcare is typically going to underperform uh, at a time when the economy is accelerating and when more cyclical sectors are going to outperform from an earnings standpoint. So that's, that is sort of thinking behind the, kind of the downgrade of the sector a couple of months ago to neutral. Um, and you know, beyond that, I think the um, the other forces that are at play are the same ones that have really been at play for the last eighteen months, or in some cases even longer. And that's the legislative and, and regulatory uncertainty that particularly impacts the pharma sector. We really haven't seen any significant development on drug pricing. There's been some rhetoric, but I think for the most part, that issue has been pushed behind other more pressing political issues on the new administration's agenda. Um, I retain some optimism that we'll see a, a modern drug pricing agreement at some point later this year, but uh, I must confess, I think it's, it's pushed further back and therefore not as likely. And as we get into, not as likely as I thought before, I should say, uh, but as we get closer to, to 2022 and a midterm election, I think then healthcare becomes a political issue again and it's hard to get stuff done. Um, so I'm still optimistic, but not as optimistic as I was that we'd see a, a resolution to drug pricing this year. Um, and then uh, the other force that I think is, is playing uh, on the industry is just the continued uncertainty around various COVID trends. So, the COVID beneficiaries, particularly companies that benefited from COVID diagnostic testing, really have not performed because the market is is not willing to pay for COVID-related windfall uh, revenues and profits. And it wants to sort of see what these companies look like once we're through that bolus of COVID growth. And then on the other side of the equation, the companies that um, struggled during COVID, particularly the medical device companies, depend on medical procedures that were not occurring during much of the last um, 15 months, but are now recurring and recovering. The market seems to be hesitant to reward those companies in any meaningful way. And I I suspect it's because the market, again, is looking for what normalized growth is going to be for all of these sectors. And with the uncertainty around growth, whether it's sub-trend sub, uh, growth or above-trend growth, the market just has trouble valuing these companies, and I think that's causing a, a general lack of uh, willingness to invest in 
uh, sectors that for us are most preferred, and, and we can talk more about where we think that goes. But my, my sense is that those are the forces that have really been impacting performance. Cyclical in terms of the economy, legislative and political overhangs that really are not new but don't seem to be resolving anytime soon, and then just general uncertainty about growth trends because of the changes in cross-currents uh, wrought by the, the COVID uh, pandemic. Okay, well, Eric, that was a very helpful starting point. So thank you for providing us with some clarity in terms of, from your perspective, what the key drivers have been with respect to U.S. healthcare performance on a year-to-date basis. And uh, to your point, there are a couple of items there that we look forward to diving a bit deeper into with you in just a few short moments, including a performance outlook as well as COVID-19, where we are with that. Before we get to those points, I thought it would be timely to highlight how earlier this week a significant milestone was achieved with the FDA having approved the first drug to combat Alzheimer's in nearly two decades, 20 years. So, Eric, what are the implications of this notable development to the sector? Yeah, um, complicated would be my, my, uh, my succinct response in terms of the implications. I think it has been clear for a number of months that the FDA really wanted to approve this drug from Biogen. At the same time, it has been clear for a number of years that this drug has, very, has significant questions about whether it really will work. And those have not been answered just by virtue of the FDA approving the drug. Um, and I think that that question will linger in the minds of many clinicians and in the minds of many investors about whether this drug that will work. But I think the, the broader takeaway is that the FDA entirely and exactly because there, there has not been a drug approved for Alzheimer's in over a decade, wants drugs to be approved for Alzheimer's because the unmet demand is enormous and it is only growing and accelerating as the baby boom generation ages into uh, a period in their lives where Alzheimer's will become more prevalent in, in that population. And so I think it's an enormous market opportunity. And now it's clear that from a regulatory standpoint, the barriers to entry are quite low, at least compared to history and compared to other therapeutic classes. And they will probably remain low for the next few years until there are other entrants and the FDA feels as though there are enough uh, options available to patients and that uh, the rest of the industry has been sufficiently encouraged to continue conducting research because much of the, the motivation behind FDA, I think, was to continue the funding of uh, efforts uh, to find better solutions to Alzheimer's disease. Uh, so I think in the, in the bigger sense, this is, is good news for the market because it really opens up a large market and, and signals that that market will be open and remain open and is, in fact, so large that the FDA has, um, has put very low barriers in place. I think in the, sh- in the shorter term and perhaps medium term, the, the issue I worry about is the pricing dynamic. Biogen uh, announced a $56,000 a year average price for their drug, and that is much higher than expectations. And if you think about the number of patients who could be eligible to take this drug, it creates a a significant cost increase on the Medicare system, and it plays right into the debate about drug pricing. And so I do worry about uh, politicians 
reacting to this news and using it as a way to push for more aggressive federal oversight of drug pricing. Uh, the silver lining may be, in fact, that this galvanizes uh, both parties and uh, uh, both the administration and Congress, as well as the industry, to come to some more workable solution that would, in fact, lead to moderate drug pricing uh, legislation later this year or early next year. And that would be quite positive because that would remove what's been a, a, a significant overhang in evaluation for the last six years. Um, but that is a silver lining view, and it's not yet clear to me that uh, where the, um, the politics will play out. But I do worry that the, the rhetoric around drug pricing as a result of how bias and prices run is going to pick up significantly in the coming weeks and months. And that could further impact sentiment on the, the pharmaceutical industry. Now, that said, sentiment on drug pricing has been bad for five years. And Big part of the reason why these companies um, have valuations they have. So I don't know how much worse it could get. Uh, and I guess I retain some optimism that this would, in fact, be a catalyst to find uh, that annoyingly difficult to find solution to, to drug pricing from a, from a legislative standpoint. Well, Eric, thank you for providing us with that insight. As you put it, complicated seems to be an appropriate word here, but this is something, of course, we'll continue to track very closely. It sounds like it remains a fluid situation, but thank you for bringing us up to speed on what this development this week means, Eric, what the implications are near longer term, and we'll look forward to perhaps following up with you on this topic on future podcasts. Another topic I wanted to hit on with you today, Eric, that being COVID-19. Of course, we've come a long way since January. We are in a very different place today than we were at the beginning of the year, let alone a year ago from today. A testing vaccination rollout has made substantial progress. So, Eric, where exactly is the U.S. today on both fronts, and what is the expectation for further progress through the balance of 2021? Well, I think what we've seen is really a tremendous progress on vaccine development, really unprecedented. And we've seen uh, development of multiple very effective vaccines. And in the U.S., certainly um, very effective procurement of vaccines for the population. And what I think has been quite effective distribution of vaccines for the population um, still hesitancy in pockets of the population. I don't know that there's any great solution to that, but for the most part, we will see the vast majority of Americans vaccinated with vaccines that have appeared to work for an extended period of time. Uh, I think the, the unknowns remain. How effective will these vaccines be against current and future variants? Uh, so far, they look reasonably effective at the variants that we've seen not as effective as, as they've been against the original variants that, against which they were tested in clinical trials, but reasonably effective. And the likelihood that um, boosters will be developed that are more targeted against some of the emerging uh, variants and that those boosters will be available by the end of this year and early 23, or sorry, early 22, and then probably into 23. And that, I think that those um, will help continue the dynamic that we're, that we're seeing, which is um, you know, approaching some concept of herd immunity. And I don't know if there's any magic number with herd immunity, but the notion that 
there is an ever-dwindling pool of people uh, within which the virus can spread, and that's really what, what we've been trying to achieve over the last year, and I think we're heading well in that direction. The U.S. Um, being ahead of Europe and other parts of the world, but I think you know over, over time, that's where the rest of the world will get as well. So I think there's great progress that's been made, and continuing progress that um, will be made over the next 12 months that I will further boost confidence that this is a, you know, a, a virus that can be at least put into the endemic phase and, and not be the kind of threat to both health and global and a global economy that, that it was in 2020. And then in terms of testing, you know, it's an interesting dynamic where we've suddenly, in some cases, seen a sudden fall off in expectations for certain kinds of COVID testing, particularly surveillance testing. Um, you saw a couple of weeks ago, Abbott Labs uh, to remove all surveillance testing from its revenue forecast for the year, and they were one of the leading uh, surveillance testing companies. And the difference there being surveillance testing is at schools and companies and sporting venues and music venues. Uh, have in some cases done, and, and if some are expecting them to do it widely through 2021 and into 2022, and it seems now that there, a lot of those organizations are shifting away from the, in the United States from needing to do that kind of surveillance testing, uh, mainly because they view the vaccination rates and the vaccination effectiveness as high enough to uh, mitigate the risk and, and the need for doing surveillance testing. Um, yeah, that could change if we have subsequent waves from variants uh, in the future, but it, it certainly seems that the testing now that is going to be done is going to be site-specific in hospitals and physician offices for patients who either are symptomatic or who've been exposed directly to someone with COVID. So a far smaller universe of people being tested than I think what a lot of people, including myself, were looking for six months ago. Um, and I think it's really a testament how effective at least in the United States, how effective the vaccines have been and the distribution of vaccines. Well, it sounds like we have been and we seem to continue to be moving in the right direction, especially on the vaccine front. So thank you, Eric, for the update and for bringing us up to speed. And this, of course, another topic we'll continue to watch very closely. So I do want to circle back. I know you alluded to towards the beginning of the conversation, a performance outlook for the group. Of course, we're in June at this point. So we are now just making our way into the second half of 2021. So, Eric, at this point, what is your performance outlook for the group? And what would you say are the key headwinds or risks that investors need to be mindful of? Yeah, and I think we already touched on the legislative and political overhang that mostly impacts the the pharmaceutical and biotech sectors. And I think that um, doesn't need to spend any more time on that other than it's an overhang and it potentially gets resolved. And if it does... I think there's significant upside to the valuations in, in the biofarm space. Uh, but for now, we remain neutral because I just don't see that yet the visibility on that resolution. Uh, and the two sectors where we are most preferred, uh, medical devices and life sciences tools, uh, those are the two sectors that are most buffeted by the uncertainty around COVID volume trends, whether it's testing on, on the down, downside, meaning testing coming down and how that's going to impact companies that have been benefiting from COVID testing or medical procedure volumes on the upside, meaning an increase in medical procedure volumes as people return to normal activity within healthcare. And investors just seem 
unwilling to really make a, a commitment to those sectors because of that uncertainty around those trends and how those trends ultimately level off into more normalized, call it pre-COVID or post-COVID growth rates. And yeah, I think that uncertainty will actually um, resolve itself by the end of the year when these companies all start giving their guidance for 2022 and have visibility, more importantly, into their own growth trends for 2022. And I, I expect that many of these companies, both in the life sciences tool space and in the medical device space, are going to see their businesses actually positioned to grow organically faster than they were pre-COVID for a variety of reasons. And I think once they can express that in terms of more concrete financial guidance for a post-COVID period, or at least a post-pandemic period, then investors will have the confidence to come back into those sectors and will appreciate the underlying growth dynamics in both of those subsectors that I think right now are being lost because of some of the noise and the cross-currents wrought by the COVID pandemic. Uh, so I, I actually, those most preferred subsectors of medical devices and life sciences tools, you know, I think are the ones that are best positioned to outperform and that see things now once there's clarity. And I think we can get more clarity on those sustainable growth trends um, by the fourth quarter of this year. And then lastly, on the services side, the managed care companies, I think they, they fall into some of the it's sort of similar overhang in terms of just the market not being clear what their cost dynamics are going to look like coming out of COVID and whether there is pent up demand for healthcare and possibly a, a sicker population coming out of COVID because of various deferred episodes of care during COVID that leads to just uncertainty about their cost trends. I'm actually not that worried about the long-term cost trend and the ability of those companies to price for any increase in what we call acuity or the sickness of the average patient the average person. Uh, but I think in the short run, there's enough uncertainty that that, that will mitigate the performance of that subsector, the, the health insurers. But I, I do think that's something longer term that they can manage in terms of keeping their margins where they've been historically. Well, Eric, very productive and informative conversation. So thank you for bringing our listeners and especially our clients up to speed on a variety of developments within the healthcare space, along with sharing your latest thinking on positioning as well as performance as we're now heading into the back half of the year. So Eric, as always, uh, great to speak with you. Looking forward to having you on again with us. And thank you again for your time and insights today. Thanks so much, Dan. Today, we've been joined by Eric Poniker, Healthcare Analyst Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office. So as a reminder to our clients and listeners, the UBS Chief Investment Office does author a variety of publications and blogs that touch on timely market developments, asset classes, as well as portfolio allocation. Uh, These resources can all be located up on UBS.com forward slash CIO. Now, for clients of UBS, you can also contact your financial advisor if you would like to learn more or receive a copy of any of the publications and blogs directly. Top of the Morning is part of the UBS Market Moves podcast channel, which is available where podcasts are found, including on iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Pandora. Visit UBS.com forward slash studios to view the entire podcast offering, as well as the new UBS trending video series. From UBS Studios, I'm Dan Cassidy. Thank you for joining us.
UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliate, UBS. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients globally, UBS AG and its subsidiaries offer both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways, and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. In the USA, UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG and a member of FINRA SIPC. For information, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash working with us. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer. 